This is Sunday Letters, the weekly newsletter on life, work and the pursuit of happiness. I'm Larry Maguire. Sunday Letters has been on the go since 2015 in written form and more recently in audio format. There's no marketing here or advertising. There's no round-the-corner attempts to make you buy stuff you don't need and part you from your cash. Instead, it's content of a deeper nature, stuff that I spend hours and days researching, writing, editing, recording. And I think it's worth it. I think it's worth the time that I put in. And I think it's worth your consideration. If you enjoy the material that I write, if you think it's worth it, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. For a fiver a month or 50 a year, you'll get Sunday letters, written and audio form. You'll also get the Nomic, which goes out every Wednesday. It's a shorter read. I think you'll enjoy that too. Get over to sundayletters.larrygmaguire.com. There's a link in the description. And subscribe. Your subscription will help me create more time to create more content just like this. I appreciate your time and attention. Here's today's episode. Good day to you. Welcome along to Sunday Letters. This is issue 128. I'm Larry Maguire. This week, I'm touching on a subject that is uh, universal, uh, but challenging, to say the least. Um, it is the inevitability of death, uh, our own death, the ones we love, uh, everyone will have their turn and I decided to share a personal story relating to the recent passing of my own mother. It may be something you are currently going through in which case maybe this isn't something you'll want to listen to or maybe it is maybe it'll help you I don't know why am I sharing it? Well I suppose you could consider it a tribute um, it's almost cathartic for me. It's a, it's a means of self-reflection, writing down what you feel about a particular subject. It helps you cope, putting something into words, verbalizing a pain or a difficulty can help you process it. And that's certainly how it is for me. This newsletter is, I suppose, private in one sense, but also public. And that's okay, whatever. You think of it what you will. But today's uh, publishing of this article, you can read it on sundayletters.substack.com. The link is in the show description, show notes. The significance is, and, and I did, there was no conscious thought of this beforehand, is that today is the uh, anniversary of the passing of my sister, Laura, who passed away age seven in 1977, 21st of March. And um, it's just a nice coincidence. So. A tribute to my mother, her life and her legacy. And maybe you can relate. Thanks for listening. I was at home about 9pm when the phone rang. The hospice called earlier, my sister said. They got a cancer care nurse to assist in the final few days. She had arrived at the house and it was, in fact, only a matter of hours. I had been over earlier that day and I knew it wouldn't be long, but I didn't think it would be as quick. How could I? It was happening for a while, maybe a year or more before she was diagnosed, but something in me didn't want to acknowledge it. I knew, but I didn't know. With retrospect, the dots became joined and her behaviour made sense. 
I had never experienced someone this close to me die before, and now here I was, about to watch them slip away. Joanne overheard my conversation with my sister and told me I needed to get over there without delay. She's a hospice nurse herself, and all too familiar with how ends play out. I was filled with questions, and driving in the dark, I felt that any effort to find answers was futile. Our natural instinct, it seems, is to try to save the ones we love. Just sitting by and watching them deteriorate is counterintuitive, so we search for something, anything to keep them here. Second opinions, experimental drugs, alternative treatments, prayers. We do whatever we can, no matter how ultimately useless and dire the situation, to save them. But there was something about her illness that made all of that pointless to me, even naive. Instead, it all simply collapsed into fact, like I was watching from the outside. I was in it, suspended in an alternate universe over which I had no control. Like watching a car crash in slow motion and my mother in the driving seat. My role, it seemed, was to offer consolation. I had little else. When I arrived at the house, my dad was sleeping. He had been Phyllis's carer in her last few months, and although he was determined to be there for her no matter what, the challenge had taken its toll on him. It was the worst time of my life, he says now. And this is strong coming from a man who lost his first child, Laura, at age seven. I think I could handle losing my wife better than I could losing one of my children. Both are traumatic, but children aren't supposed to go before their parents. However, apparently age is no antidote to loss and grief. New Year's Eve night a few years ago, Joanne was working shift, so I went to my parents' house to have a beer with my dad. We got talking about Laura, and he cried as he recalled having to identify her body in the morgue. That image has haunted him all his life, and now it haunts me. It reignites great sorrow for him, as it did for my mother, and now the prospect of losing his wife of 50 years had taken him back there. I went to his room and woke him. He hadn't yet spoken to the nurse, and so didn't know that Phyllis had only hours left. I wasn't sure what to say. The five of us were there in her final hours, watching, waiting. My dad, my three sisters and me. The room was lit only by candles. In the silence we focused on her laboured, rattling breaths, accompanied by ever-increasing gaps. As I stared at her, it seemed that she had already gone, absolutely already gone, and only an obscure version of her remained, hanging on, literally, for dear life. Not long now, I thought, as I looked at the time on my phone. At 1.13am on the last day of the year, she took her final breath. Silence. Dead silence. She's gone, someone said, and we cried. I did what I could to console my sisters and my dad, but what can one do in, under such circumstances? I can't remember thinking of anything. The whole thing was simply bizarre, surreal. We took time together and with her, each alone in our own private grief and confusion, desperately trying to comprehend the gravity of our loss. I kept telling myself that there was nothing unique about this. Everyone must face it, as so many have before. I told myself it was her time, that in many ways she had chosen it, and there was no tragedy in the death at all age. Is 76 old? But I equally know that makes zero sense. Maybe that idea has afforded me some solace, or maybe it has allowed me to hide from the weight and trauma of my own emotions. Maybe I'm cold. Maybe I'm numbed to her affections over the years. She did try, 
but I always thought it was too late. Or maybe knowing all that was coming helped me process it. Maybe the distance between us was a gift that allowed me to escape the depth of pain and loss that my sisters feel. The doctor came to confirm death a short time later. In a final gesture of appreciation towards her, I helped the nurse dress my mother in fresh pyjamas and laid her out. People may say that in losing a loved one, a parent, that there is great loss, a vacancy. Some may even feel it viscerally as a hole in their physical body. I respect that, but it's not what I feel. Instead, for me, the vacancy has been filled by her departure. I found out everything in those final few days with my mother, like the closing sequence of a movie, where apparently discrete scenes finally come together and our protagonist learns the secret that has eluded him throughout. Now it all makes sense. Everything. My entire young life. Every challenge was required, every absence and every blow worthwhile. All the hurt necessary. It was by mutual, unbeknownst design. Isn't that how life's supposed to be? Layers of confusion followed by eventual clarity. All through those final few weeks I felt privileged to be there, watching as she became less and less, dissipating slowly into whatever it was brought her here. I felt privileged for her too at making her transition. Can we find a benefit in that experience? Perhaps even an apprehensive excitement? I think we can from a certain perspective. After all, it's a chance to resolve the final persistent dichotomy. Who am I? She couldn't answer that question from her surface personality and that's why leaving was frightening for her. She put on a good show for a while, brave at times, even optimistic, but I sensed that she knew the game was up. I knew she knew. When the facade came down, she was melancholic at the thoughts of leaving her life, at the end, at the death of herself. She said to me with tears in her eyes one afternoon, I don't know who I am. It was perhaps the most profound thing I have ever heard. On another visit, she looked at me, arms outstretched and asked, What's it all about, Lar? What's it all about? I don't know. I just don't know. She was asking the same question with what felt like the same depth of inquiry as I had been asking of myself for some time. I, of course, had no answer for her, but it felt appropriate that she would ask it. It's the question we must all ask of ourselves. Yet we don't, not really. We get lost in the multiplicity and complexity of our lives and concern for those things replace us. The fight with a neighbour over a boundary wall, the kids towing the line, the cost of food, how crap our politicians are, the job we hate so much. These things command our thoughts, but in our final days, these frivolous, frivolous things take on their authentic plastic reality and we have little choice but to face ours. I liked to be alone with her because it was then I could get hers and the true nature of our relationship could exist. Without others in the room, there was the opportunity for something, an honesty maybe. By now, she was mainly confined to her bed except for visits to the bathroom. Later, even those short walks weren't possible. I sat on the end of the bed one day and we talked. My dad took Cara to the kitchen to get some sweets and it was then she became upset. I don't want to go, she said. I've too much to do. She looked like a child to me, helpless and confused on some level she knew was certain. I came closer, put my arm around her shoulder, held her hand and we both cried softly together. That's all I could do. She spoke of her mother, Bridget, a lot during this time. That feckin' bitch is coming for me, she said, 
nodding her head in reluctant acceptance. Now I have my son, she apparently told her when I was born. My son, not your son. There was always a conflict between them, even after Bridget died. I guess the ink runs more than skin deep on some tattoos. When you were born, she said, you were a brute. You nearly killed me. I knew you'd be all right. I didn't have to worry about you. As opposed to who, I thought. Then the penny dropped. 47 years old, and I had never seen it before this moment. It wasn't about love or the lack of it. It was about protection. Always about protection. And I didn't need it as much as others. It was that premise by which she sculpted me. Death is certain. Life is certain too. But I only get to be me, and you only get to be you for a fleeting moment. Before we know it, time is up. That seems tragic, yet we have the opportunity to make it spectacular. The truth of the matter is that it is already spectacular, and we need no effort to make it more so. Do you want to burn bright for a short time, or burn low for a longer time? Are they not both valid realities? Today is the anniversary of Laura's death. I'm apt, perhaps, that I chose to write this today. She lived for a short time. Phyllis lived for a longer time. Tragedy and fortune are relative, and it seems our lives are a blend of both. So who's to say what is tragic? In many ways, the tragedy is not to see that glory and tragedy are one. How bizarre is our existence? How utterly remarkable is it that we are even here? Is that not something to be celebrated? We are so obsessed with our material existence, with our attachments, that we fail to see the depths of that which lie beyond its apparent reality. We become so myopically absorbed with the contents of our thought and our experience that we lose the benefit we've been gifted by merely being here. Success, wealth, attention, applause, or the lack thereof, these things can be enjoyable or not, but they are abstractions, symbols of that mere surface reality. We've created a stage upon which to play, many props and a myriad of reasons to protect them. In the process, we've forgotten ourselves. Then death comes and it's a disaster. And maybe that's appropriate and valuable in a certain sense, because how can we know if we don't know? Words never teach, only experience teaches. And my mother taught me a lot, the most significant of which occurred in those last few weeks. As a child, she taught me how to dice onions, chop turnip, peel spuds and wash the kitchen floor. And when I do those things now, I think of her. I pass them on and more to my children, and in that she lives on subconsciously in the minds of them. She taught me some painful lessons too, and I regard them just as important. Although at the time I wanted to be a million miles away from her, and I did. But that was her gift to me. As parents, our job is to make our children psychologically independent from us. The stronger the ties, the greater the pain of loss, and the more unstable our lives become. Of course, we can go too far with this idea, completely removing all semblance of connection. But reunification can happen, even at the final moment. It's a realisation that it all was purposeful, and we weren't, in fact, separated at all. I can't not be grateful for what Phyllis Bryan has given me. I am eternally grateful for everything. My time will come just as hers has. And when it does, I will have no choice but to go. My wish in the meantime, as I anticipated, is that my children are left with the same sense that she left me. In the meantime, I have a life to live.
in memory and appreciation for the life and legacy of Bridget Philomena Maguire, Nee Bryan, 25th of August 1945 to the 31st of December 2020. We believe in ourselves so completely, don't we? I mean, I exist, you exist. We have this sense of ourselves, whether it's a belittling sense or whether it's a, a, a bold and brazen idea of ourselves. We know ourselves to exist. I think, I think most people can relate to that. So the concept of us not existing is just so ridiculous, so outrageous. We run a mile from this whole idea of death. And I was watching a nature show on the TV about uh, the Yukon in the United States and that whole area, uh, the birth and death of of animals and the, the interplay of, uh, you know, predator and prey and winter and summer and how that all just occurs. And just like us, they come and go. And it's this continuous cycle and we seem to be separate from it, but really we're not. And it's it's really a burden that we placed upon ourselves, this concept of self, this whole idea to think about our thoughts. In psychology, it's called metacognition, thinking about thinking. And apparently we're the only creature that can do that, at least on this planet. So we observe ourselves existing in this reality and we watch all around us coming and going and we know that it's going to happen to us and it's uh, it's difficult to deal with. And we watch those close to us live, children, old people, and it's just the worst, you know. And I wonder why. I mean, what was the point? Why would, if consciousness is one amorphous reality, why would it even choose to become conscious of itself if this was what was entailed, you know? Why can't we just be oblivious to it and, and just be in it like a dog or a bird or a tree? Or maybe we, we, we do them, we do those things in injustice by thinking them as simpler than us, you know? Maybe that's a degree of arrogance uh, that doesn't serve us. Regardless, we have to find a way to cope. And it's been my finding, maybe not yours, but mine, certainly, that staying with that question and, and actually dealing with it, um, trying to come to terms with the fact that actually I'm going to disappear someday is enormously valuable. I'm not saying it will always be that way for everyone who... I have ever met and know and love to watch them disappear. But it getting the sense that I have from watching my mother disappear, that acceptance has offered me a huge benefit. Um maybe maybe I'm speaking too soon. I should really keep me powder dry on this one, you know? Um because it's not the first. Well, it is. It is the first, but it won't be the last. And uh, I mean, you can't stay there. I mean, you can't get lost in the 
in the tragedy and the darkness of loss of losing a loved one but um it doesn't mean that you don't broach the subject i think we should there's enormous value in it thanks for listening uh, and indeed reading if you've read the article and today's sunday letters uh, i thought it appropriate that i get this out of my head and down on paper this is how i do it uh, i know it's not for everyone but it's, it's how i do it and uh, next week we'll be back with another episode and another article in fact midweek if you'd like to catch it i am uh, publishing a new uh, short article titled the nomic with a g beginning with g uh, uh, no gno um as being the root of the word knowledge or a modern word knowledge no is being knowledge uh, so i called it the nomic and it's kind of a play on it but however that's going out on wednesday if you want to get that um you can get over to sundayletters.substack.com there's a link in the show notes and you can catch uh sunday letters article every sunday morning and the midweek nomic um for free for now uh, so hopefully I'll see you there. Okay, in the meantime, have a good week and I'll see you later.